0: This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay welcome Mark Yarm,
1: the author of Everybody Loves Our Town, An Oral History of Grunge, to revisit the legendary Deep Six compilation.
2: It just occurred to me that Green River is sort of the Uncle Tupelo
1: of grunge.
0: The best way I could describe it is it sounds like a Ted Nugent record backwards.
1: Probably actually on his Blackberry drinking a Forno Loco right now.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Manichi, and joining me again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are... well, we're breaking the rules tonight. Do you feel like a rebel?
0: I do. This is exciting. We're,
2: we're actually going to tackle a piece of music that was not recorded in the 1990s, or released in the 1990s. I'm sure... Some whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, whoa. Released in 90s. Was it was re-released that. in the nineties.
2: Well, it was re-released, so we're getting around that. We we found a a, a sneaky way to a get loophole. it past the uh, get it past the management of Dig Me Out, which it are very strict. Yeah, we're gonna review. I guess you'd say legendary Deep Six compilation, which came out on C Z C slash Z. I want to make sure I get that in there. C slash Z Records in nineteen eighty six. In order to tackle this legendary piece of music, we have a special guest the author of Everybody Loves Our Town, An Oral History of Grunge, joining us, Mr. Mark Yarm. Mark, thank you for coming on the
1: show. How are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing very well, thanks for having me, and, and thanks for bending your rules. When I when I suggested that we do the Deep Six compilation, That I wasn't paying so much attention that you only did 90s albums, so if I had known, I probably wouldn't have challenged you like that. But i think the 90 it was re- it was released in 94 so on cd so uh, uh through a and m so i think we're we're good april 94 so
0: and, um, and if there was a record to to break the rules for i think this one would make a pretty good case so yeah we're good
1: We've so sure. certainly it, it has the roots of a lot of uh, what became known as 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 grunge of the 90s so i, I think i think we're on solid standing here. I checked
0: with the board. By the, uh, Rock yeah. police.
2: No, the the board has said is okay. We can we can proceed. So <laughs> we will do so. Make sure that you stick around at the end of the podcast. Once we have made it through the bands on the Deep Six compilation, we're going to have a trivia contest, and you're going to have a chance to win a vinyl. Copy Sealed? Is that true, Mark?
1: It is it is sealed. It's it's straight from Chris Hanzik. He was uh kind enough to um send me a copy when I told him I was looking for a giveaway prize for when the book came out and he was kind enough to send me one. I think I think he has quite a few left over. But they're they're they they patch a pretty, fetch a pretty penny on, on eBay, probably around a hundred dollars or so as I check. So this is a this is a really good prize.
2: So you're going to have a chance to take home the Deep Six compilation with our trivia question at the end of the podcast. So stick around and we will explain that once we get to the end. So let's talk about you for a moment before we get into the album. And specifically the book, which Jay and I have been reading the past uh, couple days. It's really fascinating in that it's not simply one person's take. You have compiled a massive amount of time and people into this one like i don't don't know it's it's sort of like the complete guide to everything grunge and it's it's fairly amazing where did where's the genesis of this book in terms of how you came about to write it and
1: um the idea for it well the genesis of it is i was a senior editor at blender magazine which you might recall um folded a few years back but Before it did, I wrote an oral history of Sub Pop, the Sub Pop label, which uh, was celebrating its uh, 20th anniversary a few years ago. And it was the 20th anniversary of Sub Pop oral history. The whole arc from the grunge years to the shins and beyond. Obviously, the the most mythical part of that, the legendary part, is is those early grunge years, Nirvana, Mudhoney, Soundgarden. I mean, the the Blender piece, uh, I mean, it was a six page piece. By that time, Blender was a fairly thin magazine, which is why it ended up folding. And uh, so there wasn't much editorial room. It was probably four pages of text total, which is a lot. There's very little space to cram in 20 years of history. So there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. I realized that I, you know, there, were, there was the making of something in there, a book or, or beginnings of it, if I, I wanted it to. That thought did occur to me, but I never would have done anything with it. I never would have had the... I would never would have gotten off my ass and done anything. Right. The the guy who became my agent contacted me and said, hey, uh, why don't you turn this into a book, into the oral history of grunge, kind of in the spirit of of Please Kill Me, the oral history of punk. That being one of the the touchstones uh, of the book, of course. So, uh, you know, out of that, that, that's where the the book emerged from. And two and a half, three years later, here we are. Are you actually from Seattle? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not from Seattle. I'm actually from mm-hmm. Connecticut originally, and now I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, although I did go out to Seattle a number of times to interview folks and, and do research. I'm also not related to Mark Arm of of Mud Honey or Green River, <laughs> which is. I mean, you, you laugh, but and I, I do have to make that uh, big. Especially on the internet, it gets very confusing. People see Mark. Yarm and and they conflate me and Mark Arm and it's very confusing, you know, a guy writing a book on grunge who has a name very similar to one of the, you know, the foremost proponents of of the sound. So it's good. It was also a good icebreaker in starting many of these interviews. An inside joke, I guess, amongst the, the community, I suppose.
2: So did you actually get to speak to everybody in the book or were some of these taken from, like, did you have to do research on interviews and pull quotes? from like old newspapers and, or, or magazines or anything like that? Or was this all first person?
1: For the most part, most of them uh, I did myself either on the phone or in person. I mean, there were some people that just weren't accessible. I mean, for instance, some of the Pearl Jam guys, because they were doing their own book and movie. Um, so some of, some of it is from, it's all noted in the book, what's, what's archival material. But uh, the good bulk of it, I'd say 90% of it is is all original.
2: The thing that's so cool about it is that it's linear in terms of you start at the very beginning, seeds of what would become what we know as grunge and what people perceive it to be. Did you know that that was what was going to be your, I guess, approach to it? Or did, was it in interviewing people that you started to see, you know, this is the direction it's going. I'm not going to just go band by band or cover certain aspects. I'm going to go chronologically
1: right well I mean the the plan from the beginning was always to begin begin with the deep six bands the bands we're going to discuss tonight because it seemed like such such a great starting point these these six bands that, that and on this compilation that kind of became essentially the first record that kind of typifies what became known as grunge. It was kind of a bellwether for that. So it was always my plan to start with these six bands. And if you trace their lineage or, you know, how they, they spread out over time, you'll see how incredibly incestuous they are, or how, say, you know, Malfunction, Andy Wood, from the, from that band, went on to form Mother Love Bone with members of Green River, who ultimately became Pearl Jam and also Green River spread out. To become mud honey, so it's a little bit hard to. Ch- <laughs> you have to have a basic. There, there are charts online that you can look at to, to see how exactly how incestuous this whole scene was. But you know the the roots are pretty much there. There, I mean, granted there there was a punk scene in Seattle before this, but this this seems like a very good solid starting point.
2: Well, that's a good um, segue into actually getting into the history of the Deep Six compilation. For those not familiar, this came out on C slash uh, Z Records in 1986. Yes. There mm-hmm. were six bands, hence the name Deep Six. Soundgarden, Melvin's, Green River, Skin Yard, Malfunction, and The U-Men. And then it was re-released by CZ and then also a and in 1984, and that was the CD release. The original pressing was on vinyl, obviously. You, you cover a, a lot of it, and we're going to get into it in the individual... Bands, but do you want to talk a little bit about how the the compilation actually sort of came together with regards to the label that it was came out on? Because I think a lot of people would assume that well, if the first thing that came out of Seattle probably came out on Sub Pop, but that's not true.
1: You know, there there are a whole bunch of things going on at all this all at the same time, but uh, yeah, I mean, there there this the, the famous Sub Pop one hundred compilation came out um, not too long after after Deep Six. But you know the, these things are all kind of starting up at around the same time. Obviously, in many ways, and and some people complain about this from the scene that, that, that in many ways, the sub pop story has become the Seattle story, and they've become inextricably linked. And there are labels like CZ that get ignored. So, but the, you know, this was a, as I said a very a, a touchstone, and and CZ was formed by. Uh, Chris Hanzik and his girlfriend uh, at the time, uh, Tina Casale, I am probably mispronouncing her name. It's been a while since I've spoken with her, but um, they they co-founded this label. The, the C is for her last name, the Z is for from his name, from the middle of his name, so that, that's the origin of CZ. People, a lot of people associate CZ Records with Daniel House from, from Skin Yard because he later took over the label. Um, after Chris Hansick got sick and tired of it, um, he didn't have a very good experience with this album. Um, a lot of people complained about it from everything from the sound quality to his promotional efforts, or, or what they felt was not enough promotional efforts. So, so but he and he and his girlfriend, us, uh, or he in particular, started recording bands early on. She was in many ways more, you know, funding it, although she she did have according to some of the bands, uh, a lot of input into, into the mix and such, much to their chagrin, it seems. They started recording bands. I mean, Chris Hanzik recorded Green River prior to this, and and uh, the way he sees it, it came out, out of a lot of uh, Green River uh, desire to record. Kim Thiel of Soundgarden told me that you know originally it was supposed to only be the two bands, Soundgarden and Green River, and it just kind of grew from there. It's a little unclear on on whose idea it was or when it started, but I mean, those are the basic players.
2: Well, that that allows us to um, slide nicely into Soundgarden. think of all the bands on here, they're probably, without a doubt, the most recognizable. The Melvins are probably the second, but more underground than Soundgarden, so Soundgarden is going to be the (laughs) one that most people are recognized. I thought it was interesting that in the book, when we're talking about Soundgarden, Kurt Block from Fastbacks uh, is quoted, I think I got this right, I remember being excited for Soundgarden, but their songs in that sounded pretty crappy. I could have been really excited, it could have been a really exciting introduction to those sort of bands. But it just sounded like it was recorded on a cassette recorder. Jay and I discussed this. We didn't think that they actually, in ret- like now, sound that bad. I, th- I thought that there's... Jay might have a different opinion, but I thought they were pretty close to what the early Soundgarden stuff sounded like. You know, All of Your Lies is on, ends up on a later release. Almost sounds the same. Jay, did you find that that was the case? That, that they were pretty crappy? Or did you think that they were in line?
0: Well, my expectations going in were that, and I hadn't listened to this, I mean, I was aware of it, but I hadn't actually uh, listened to the compilation. So going into it, my expectations were that it was going to be, it was going to be very rough and, and sound like it was recorded on a cassette recorder. And I was pretty surprised. I mean, it's not the greatest sounding recording ever, but particularly the Soundgarden stuff, I don't think it sounds that far from, like you said, that far from the early records. Um, obviously, those, those early records are, are, are better, but you know it's not night and day for sure and um, you know the band's playing is is so good um at this point too that i didn't find it distracting or i had a hard time kind of putting myself back in that time and, and and being able to see it that way in that it would be in any way disappointing i mean i think that stuff sounds particularly their stuff sounds as groundbreaking now as it as i would imagine it would have at that time so
2: did you get any sense from talking to Kim Thayol or or the other guys that they had any reservations about what that stuff sounded like? Yeah, I mean,
1: I know Kim and did. I mean, he talks about uh, some of the mixes sounding muddy, and, and uh, at the time that the uh, Chris and Tina, the couple you know behind the compilation, were were fighting in the studio. They're in the process of breaking up, so that that had an effect. And I, I know the guys from uh, uh, Malfunction were disappointed with the mix. I mean, Kevin Wood, uh, the guitarist, was you know. He was supposedly. There's a lot more wild guitar stuff coming and going on that, that got toned down somehow. Yeah, I mean, also we're also listening to the CD version. I I don't know if anything was done in between the vinyl and CD versions. I can't say for sure, but I know a lot of people had a lot of complaints on the sound quality, including, I mean, including Chris Hanzik himself, who, who seemed rather embarrassed by it. I mean, he was pretty young when he did it and just starting out. So th- there seemed to be disappointment in many quarters about how it sounded.
0: Maybe hmm. it's an issue of expectations. Like they expected um, it to sound like those bands sound live maybe. And myself and maybe Tim too, our expectations, you know, going back to a recording, this whole, you know, put out by a, an upstart label our expectations would have been it would be a lot rougher so um, i was pleasant pleasantly surprised at least from um the Soundgarden stuff how good it sounded right
1: i mean it should also be noted that in, in you know this was recorded in 1985 this was not a common you know putting out an independent album like this was not i mean nowadays it's like everyone does it i mean mm-hmm. especially digitally technology digital technology but you know back then it was like this unheard of in a very difficult process it wasn't like you could just go out and make a record it wasn't uh wasn't an easy thing to do it was kind of like it was a big process and 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 a lot of the bands here are are, you know recorded for the first time
0: and it was a true compilation in that all these bands recorded at the same studio right and they were all sort of mixed together and mastered together it wasn't like compilations are typically now where you submit a song from wherever you record whether home or (sighs) something super professional studio i mean this was everybody all in together kind of kind of approach yeah right? i mean
1: the way the way they did it uh was that they had two representatives from each band were allowed to come into the mix down and uh have their say so it didn't get too unwieldy but by chris hansick's estimation that that seemed to affect also mm-hmm. affected you know too many too many cooks i guess it was as he said it was kind of a very democratic thing from probably too democratic ultimately, but you know, it's sound wise, yeah, I mean it does sound raw and scrappy and but it, and I mean, also some of the song, you know, these are very, very early some of the recordings by some of these bands and clearly not what what they became. So it's it's not the best album in the world, but it's I think it's a it's an important album.
2: The second band I wanted to get to is the Melvins. First of all, they have four songs, which is the most of any band. They almost take up about a quarter of the whole compilation. There's an article referenced from The Rocket in page 81 of the book that said that the bands that made up this third category, which was grunge, they couldn't open for Metallica and they couldn't open for The Exploited because they weren't metal enough or they weren't punk enough. And to me, the Melvins sort of almost sum up exactly what that is in that weird third category because the Melvins display on one song absolutely pummeling metal and then they have this like, you know, if it, like if the beginning of the song Scared almost has this happy vocal melody like playfulness to it.
0: Reminded me of Weezer.
2: Yeah, it had a Weezer feel <laughs> to it. It was totally bizarre. So do you guys think that that's am I off base or do you think that the Melvins are kind of, especially here I think, you know, I, I, I wasn't totally familiar with the Melvins catalog All the way through, so I went back and I was on Spotify for the the last week, just listening to everything I could of the Melvins, and obviously their sound changed, but in terms of where they were at when this came out, do you guys think that they were kind of the poster child for this sound?
1: They're... Certainly, one of them. Or certainly, you know, have that those metal roots and and have the punk roots, and they were you know they were began as a, as a hardcore band, essentially really speedy. Which I mean, you get some of the sense in some of these songs, and then uh, they did the drastic thing of, of slowing down, not not entirely, not and not in every song, as Buzz well Osborne would point out. But that that was the thing that they were most associated with. Associated with was this slowing down. It should be noted they they do have four songs. There was a, two of them are only like forty seconds, so I don't know if they're hogging that much that much time on it. Obviously, Melvins were, were a huge influence on on Nirvana, and who, who obviously also personified that sound.
0: Yeah, I would think from a I guess from a midwestern perspective on what I think of you know is the grunge sound or the Seattle sound. I think that they are probably a little bit more metal than what I would think of for the sound. But what's interesting reading the book is that, and really doing research on, on the on the origins, metal is one of the important ingredients that I think kind of gets overlooked. It's almost like we view it here as we think more about the result um, of the, the stuff that we saw come out of it, which was more, you know, uh, you're further into the 90s at that point. Um, and some of the metal had been toned down a little bit or uh, in terms of like... Ner- what Nirvana had taken their metal influence and turned it into, you know, where it's a little bit more pop-oriented, and it's not as abrasive, I guess. Um, yeah. So for me, it was sort of a, it was sort of a realization of how important uh, the Melvins were to uh, developing other bands, I guess, and spurring and pushing other bands forward. I want to get this right, but I really was really fascinated in the book by sort of the tossing of the the baton of drop detuning. From one band to another, I thought that yeah. was really cool. And it started with the Melvins, right? weren't they the first ones to discover what drop detuning was? And didn't he well, tell Kim Thale? <laughs> or Kim
1: Thale told Jerry yeah. Cantrell, and, and the rest is history. That, well, like, I mean, obviously, obviously, uh, the Melvins picked it up from the way it goes. Obviously, Black Sabbath. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and then and then uh, a friend of the Melvins picked it up from Black Sabbath, taught in the Melvins. Melvins uh, passed that knowledge on to uh, Kim Thayil, and and then he passed it on to Jerry Cantrell. So that was kind of the line I drew, um, tracing the, this uh, drop D tuning, which in many ways you know gives grunge its sound. I feel like I drew a pretty direct line from, from between all those bands. The Melvins were clearly at the forefront of that, they were, and they were hugely influential as far as all these bands go. And now we
2: have a million bands that abused um, drop D tuning to follow.
0: (laughs) But I totally relate to like his uh, and what I meant. Like he didn't invent drop D tuning, but he discovered it. And I totally relate to like that. You know, when you're a kid and just, you know, getting the music, maybe you start playing an instrument. You're like, how do they do that? Like, why would I play my guitar? Does it not sound like (laughs) I'm playing the same chord? Why does it sound totally different? And you're sort of like, oh, they're using something called distortion. And then... uh, Oh, these all these other tunings so I just really appreciated that you know sort of revealing that discovery and then showing how it like you said drew that clear line through all of these bands and uh, th- going back and listening to what they sounded like at this point it, it really um, it really amplifies that. It makes it crystal clear after you've uh, if you're reading the book and, and listening to the compilation at the same time.
2: So next band we wanted to get to is Green River. River is, in a lot of ways, thought of as the amoeba of, of grunge. People think of it mostly because you've got people from Pearl Jam and people from Mud Honey who detoured through Mother Love Bone in this band. But when I was listening to Green River, I was actually thrown a little bit because for as much as, and I, I kind of found this ironic in reading the book, for as much as they bag on you know, the 80s metal you know what those guys, what that scene was, and the LA scene, and the Sunset Strip scene, and sort of like characterizing them all, and then later getting pissed off that they were all being characterized as just these lumberjack flannel-wearing, you know, Seattle guys. I kind of thought that Green River was the closest thing to a '80s metal band, if you take out Mother Love Bone, which is not on the compilation. But they they reminded me a lot of sort of the darker dirtier elements of the la sunset strip 80s metal bands now jay you're um, our resident expert on those <laughs> sorts of bands do you have any idea what i'm talking about uh, you hate that i call you that you have I a totally phd did. in metal yeah. yeah
0: oh that's no i put so much pressure what no school? i totally agree i, I, I what school did you get a
1: phd in metal at
0: yeah no shit i should have Are you is it an
1: accredited university uh... I will tell
0: you, I I remember way more about um, the metal bands I learned about in high school than the things I learned about in high school. That's for sure. <laughs> I think this band sounds a lot more metal than even Mother Love Bone did. Now you have to take, you have to remove uh, Mark Arm's vocals and just listen to the music, uh, particularly on a song like uh, "Your Own Best Friend." The beginning of that song sounds a lot like Iron Maiden. <laughs> Uh, it's a little bit, it's a little bit slowed down, a little bit different guitar tone, but you know the minor picking. They even put in like muted cymbal hits and the drum hits, you know, and the bass hits at the beginning. The like dynamics of new wave of British heavy metal, you know, type type mm-hmm. dynamics. Um, it has a galloping bass line almost at times, like the bass and the bass part sounds a lot like uh, totally metal Venom or Iron Maiden.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it made me—I I was completely fascinated just by thinking of all those elements coming together. What I know and read about Mark Arm's personality, and I couldn't help but wonder: was he even aware of how metal these guys were, or was it just he was, you know, so not into any of that that it didn't even hit his radar? Like in terms of like, oh my god, these guys are playing an Iron Maiden song that I'm singing over top, of <laughs> or did he not, well- just not even care?
1: I, I, no, he, I mean, he, he knew that that was the essential tension in, in Green River that, that Mark Arm would, I mean, obviously he was more influenced by Iggy and the Stooges and things of that ilk, which came out even more on Mud Honey and the rest, you know, the other guys in the band, particularly Jeff and Stone, you know, there was a lot of metal in there. Um, I mean, Aerosmith was, uh, well, it was probably a shared shared reference but um you know i mean if you look at the picture one of the the photo of green river that that's in the book i mean he, they essentially look like a, a sunset strip band i mean there's stone gossard with a kerchief around his you know neck and he's not wearing a shirt and and uh jeff Iment is like uh wearing i don't know if that's a satin shirt or he looks like a new york doll basically uh, mark arm looks relatively punk but you know they, they look glam they, they definitely took influences I mean Steve Turner who was guitarist in, in Green River and later uh, in Mu that's why he left he was too metal for his taste he wasn't into that so there was, there was this essential uh, tension in that band probably one of the you know what ultimately tore them apart I would say mm-hmm. to be re- to be reductionist about it that is.
2: well sometimes tension Ooh, is-, is good for a band but sometimes it it actually just doesn't work out. And I think that's probably well, the it,
0: case. I think it kind of it kind of works. It's just I mean, obviously they both became greater when they separated. I don't know. Musically, it's not awful or embarrassing, or it's just fascinating that you can. I mean, you can really just hear the division, and somehow at times it melts together, and the two um, you know sort of make up for each other, which is which is kind of interesting. But uh, I, I was just I was shocked at going back and listening to it now, just how apparent those influences were. And, I bet at the time, if I would heard it, I would have never even heard the references. But now, with this much distance, you can kind of come with a fresh persp- perspective and a little bit more of an open mind and say, "Oh my God, yeah, that's that's an Iron Maiden intro." <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was probably a very deliberate rip on yeah. their part as well. Yeah.
2: It just occurred to me that Green River is sort of the Uncle Tupelo of grunge, in that they they split up and became way more successful. At least one of them, one side of it did. Stone and Jeff became the Wilco and yeah. uh, Mark and Steve became the Sunvolt, J Farrar side. But they're both kind of revered as being this, the progenitors of a particular genre of music with Uncle Tupelo. Hey, I just made it. I just made a totally random <laughs> association. I knew I
1: would squeeze <laughs> Uncle Tupelo into this one. Oh, man. <laughs> is, that a, is that a recurring theme on this show?
2: Uh I have a, I have a bit of a. Everybody knows I'm a huge Wilco, Jeff Tweedy, Uncle Tupelo, Jay Farrar fan. His, uh, I see. his
0: nickname is Uncle Tim Cavolt. Yeah, <laughs> I see.
1: That was my college nickname. Yeah,
0: he has an uh, un, unhealthy obsession with with uh, those bands.
1: I gotcha, I gotcha. But yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. The, the, uh, the yeah, I buy it. Sure,
0: excellent. I love how the band ends in the book too. It's just kind of like they all. It just seemed like at one point they were like, you know what, we've gone as far as we can. It's over, and they were all just like, okay, and just (laughs) moved on. It wasn't like some big dramatic, you know, falling out, and where you know one person didn't want to quit and they tried to go on. It was just sort of like the way it's presented in the book. There was just an epiphany of like we've gone as far as we can, and it's time to do something else, and nobody's gonna cry about it really.
1: Well, I mean, I think I mean that these. Conflict as it was always presented was Jeff and Stone who went on to ultimately, as as you know, form you know form Pearl Jam, <clears throat> were the quote unquote more careerist guys. They were the guys who wanted to get signed. Uh, Mark mm-hmm. Arm on the other hand had the more the punk DIY ethic. So I mean they they basically that uh, their their careers played out kind of in that way. I mean careerist of course being a kind of a slur, but um, you know it's. it's uh, Jeff would say, you know, if it's careerist to not want to wash dishes the rest of your life, then I guess I'm a careerist, that sort of thing. But <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, that that was, uh, you know, they wanted apparently wanted Mark Arm to get singing lessons. I mean, I love Mark Arm's voice. It's it's probably not the most commercial voice uh, in the world. A little nasal, and uh, it's not Eddie Vedder's voice, that's for sure. It's not this rich baritone. So essential differences. I mean, the, the last show that they played together was uh, was the, they were opening for Jane's Addiction and. And Jeff and Stone talk about how they kind of saw the light. You know, there was this alternative band, Jane's Addiction, doing their own thing and and playing to this packed house, and that, that's kind of where where they wanted to go. Whereas, you know, that was not the direction Mark Arm wanted to go in.
0: That's uh interesting because when I read that in the book, the last interview we did was with with Plexi, and they sort of uh, brought up Jane's Addiction the same way, and it just helped me realize, remember how important they were. You know, to proceed all of the the bands that we sort of, well, I mean, particularly Nirvana. You know, I think everybody thinks, oh, Nirvana is the one that changed everything. And actually, when you really trace it back, it's kind of Jane's Addiction was the first one to kind of stick their foot out and do something completely different and gave confidence, yeah. I think, to a lot of other people to to be different.
1: It was Jane's Addiction and Faith, Faith No More. They were really sort of, quote unquote alternative successes and they they as you said sort of opened the door a bit and I mean even um Alice in Chains' A&R guy makes the you know very valid point that Alice in Chains were having success on the radio prior to Nirvana. Obviously Nirvana just blasted the whole thing wide open but there were there were a lot of right. bands a lot of bands that they that did a lot of legwork that led up to the success of Nirvana.
0: That's right. I remember uh CSRO it was on like a metal compilation that I got at the time that had like Judas Priest on it and like, you know, sort of all of the heavier Metal Church, a couple other bands, whatever label, I can't remember, whatever label House Chain Chains was on put out a, a compilation around that time and it had CSR on it before the album came out. I remember thinking like, wow, this is different. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they even <laughs> tou- maybe did a little tour with those bands. So, yeah, they were definitely uh, making waves a little bit way before. Nirvana was, but it was more. It would definitely be marketed as a metal band.
1: Yeah, so. yeah, they, they, they were. They were probably more of a metal band. That, you know, retroactively, more fit into this this grunge, grunge yeah. uh, labeled grunge. I suppose. Yeah. You know, a lot of people have accused Alice in Chains of jumping on a bandwagon. I think it, the argument is made by some in the book that it was a little bit more uh, natural in evolution than that. It was. You know, although some would still say that they jumped on this grunge bandwagon but i mean it's certainly also what the media labels these bands
0: well i think they're they seem different and distinct enough that you kind of have to give them a pass however you uh you want to align the timelines or what have you i I don't think they necessarily sound very much like any of those other bands so
1: right i mean they came from an entirely different scene the suburban metal scene which was different than where all the sub-pop bands were coming from they were they were from Different side of the tracks, quite literally.
0: Well, you know that that brings up a point. I, w- I was thinking in the book as I got into the to some of the um, Allison Chain stuff. I really wanted to pull up a map of Seattle. <laughs> it kind of becomes important as you uh, you go through the history here because it bounces around from from different areas and sort of uh, you know Bainbridge Island to I think they're just Allison Chain was described as being from the suburbs, whatever, mm-hmm. or more of a suburb band. Just right. wanting to see, like visually, like how does what does all that look like, and how far away are these places? And there's a lot of, you know, Olympias in there, and Aberdeen, and all these cities. Like how f- close? And it just made me want to pull a map out, like, kind of look at this and see how spread out was this. Because you, I don't know, for some reason, when you think of it from our perspective, it's kind of like we imagine like a two block radius with you know <laughs> one awesome practice space you know and a couple great clubs <laughs> you realize it's whole, it's a whole like and it's not even, i mean it's probably geographically way bigger than like a new york city scene or even an la scene isn't it
1: right. I mean, in terms of well, I mean, start mapping
0: out how far apart all these cities were
1: it, it should be noted that you know the melvins that we've already discussed were not from they weren't from seattle they were from Aberdeen and Montesano—they were from my, you know, which was I don't know, an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours outside of Seattle. So they were, you know, they were they were a distance away, and they, they were not a Seattle band in the proper sense of the term. That should be noted. So, um, and, you know, Olympia was its own scene. Bands like Beat Happening, in particular, and, the, and K Records, which is a whole other offshoot of, of, of music, but you know, yeah, it's pretty. Near firm. Grunge. No, no, but obviously their their history very much tied into the history of grunge. I mean, they're, yeah. they're just because of the geographical proximity and, and it's the, these musicians knowing each other and. and Occasionally collaborating. I mean, Screaming Trees did a split single with um, or split EP with uh, Be Happening, for instance. Two bands that have very little in common, but uh, somehow, somehow that came about. So,
2: and I think for like the seventh podcast in a row, the Screaming Trees and Mark Lanigan get brought up. He's like oh. he's like the uh, the ghost that we are chasing <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or is he? The guys from Plex- us? I don't know the guys from Plexi played with him. Uh, we had what did we do before that there was uh Sean Smith Alan, Alan, Johannes. Uh, yeah Alan Johannes Johannes I can always right. mispronounce his name so eventually we're scared of him but we will get him on this show we assume that he's probably always just sitting in front of an old typewriter with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth right typing lyrics with a
1: with a with a, <laughs> in a, very, a log cabin
2: in a log cabin with a scotch yeah.
1: or a whiskey a
0: shotgun next to him
1: right yeah. it's probably actually on his blackberry drinking a four loco right now or something but <laughs> don't um, ruin the don't ruin you. the image <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yeah um yeah well i mean obviously oh i mean screaming tree is also uh from ellensburg which was outside of seattle so not a seattle proper band either even though you know a lot of for the sake of you know a lot of these bands were just loved into so this quote-unquote seattle scene but Not necessarily from there.
2: That's a good segue right there into malfunction. The Return to Olympus album, and I'd heard Mother Love Bone mostly because of the the single soundtrack back in the day, and then I kind of, after I heard the the song on there, kind of found the album. Malfunction, in the retrospect, didn't seem to fit until (sighs) I heard this compilation, because they always seemed way more into Bowie and 70s glam, and they didn't seem to have that darkness that the the Sabbath darkness that a lot of the other bands had, especially you know we were talking earlier about the recording of uh, I think it's with your heart and not your hands of mm-hmm. them not thinking the guitar was loud enough. Do you think that that was actually that they really wanted the guitars louder because they just wanted them louder, or was it a matter that they were in lumped in with all these other which were really kind of loud bands and they felt like they had to step it up because the <laughs> album I, I listened to Return of Olympus just today. And it, there's nothing as loud and as heavy with that one song, and I wonder if they felt somewhat competitive when they were, or if it was just a matter of, you know, they wanted Kevin Smith's guitar to be ridiculously loud. Right, Kevin, Kevin Wood, I mean, Kevin, not Kevin Smith. No, I mean,
1: I think, I mean, he was kind of a kind of a guitar hero, and you know, and I mean, it was described. Uh, one person described it as just like this insane guitar solo that just kept going and going and then you know there was music but it never the guitar <laughs> never stopped it was just like this ongoing uh i mean they were they were they were fast and they were a little more hardcore flavored i think than that comes across here and then some of the recorded music from what i gather i mean you can also watch them on youtube but i mean they also had andy wood who is this incredibly magnetic personality who you know cite cite elton john as a huge influence just this showmanship mm-hmm. i mean that that was kind of very different very different from uh the other bands i mean i think with your heart not in your hands it's like of the songs on that this compilation seems to have the most Personality to it, I would argue. And it's my favorite song on the album. I think it's certainly, I, I guess, the most fun. <laughs> it's not a very fun yeah. album, but this is certainly the most, most fun song. Um, and I, the Melvin, you, you can look it up. The Melvins covered uh, covered that song too. They're, they're, those those two bands admired each other quite a bit. But oh. you know, Andy, Andy Wood was was a real. Huge personality. I would I would recommend people. There was a documentary that just came out on DVD last year called "Malfunction: Andy Wood Story," which is really good overview of his life and his bands and music. It's really it's it's quite good. It's everything. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the program documentary that just came out, Cameron Crow's documentary. I would I would recommend the Malfunction documentary over that. You you'll get a lot more understanding, I think, of, of Seattle and the Seattle scene and what went into the music and the, the interplay of, of the various characters from that
2: jay i think
0: you have right? that i actually watched uh i watched the extras it's fascinating there, there's some stuff i mean there's just you know 20 or 30 minutes of footage of like chris cornell stone gossard andy like all of those guys just sitting on a tour bus just talking and having fun and just running tape on them and you can just see like their personalities and there's another scene with them like hanging out after a, uh, I think a Judas Priest show mm-hmm. at some arena and they're just, wild, <coughs> I don't know if other Lopo played or they just went to the show or what was going on, but, you know, they're just there hanging out and you just get a really true sense of like what these guys were like, what they're, how unpretentious they were. <laughs> sort of, I, I think now we think back of them being like, I guess not having a sense of humor or whatever. And you totally see that come through and yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really, really well done. And yeah. it's just a, uh, his story is just amazing. And it keeps coming up too. We, we interviewed Sean Smith, and
1: mm-hmm, right. he, he was, a you
0: huge could, fan. yeah, you could tell he was really affected by him and was friends with him a little bit and, you know, really cherished that quite a bit and had a huge influence on him, which I'm a huge Sean, Sean Smith fan and wasn't that aware of how influenced he was by him. So.
1: Well, that's you brought up a good point. That's one of the rumors or or misconceptions about grunge that it was all these humorless, po-faced guys who didn't smile. Which, you know, there there were certainly a few (laughs) who kind of came across that way. (laughs) You know, for the most part, they were, you know, and especially in talking to them now, very funny, funny guys, like many musicians, I'm sure as you guys know, um, they weren't, you know, they, they were painted as the serious guys with the heroin problems. And, and certainly some of them did succumb to that. But, but still, even, you know, even like guys like Lane Staley and, and Kurt Cobain, who were sometimes painted as, as being humorless, were, were incredibly funny guys by all accounts. Obviously, there was a darker side, but it's kind of too easy sometimes to focus on that.
0: On the malfunction songs that are on here, the okay. the, the one, uh, uh, which one is it? Not, not Stars uh, New?
1: Yeah. <laughs> that
0: That's just unlike what I would ever think of something that Andy Wood would do, just in terms of just how angular it is and just noisy and, and kind of chaotic. But in a way, I, I kind of... I kind of love it. The best way I could describe it is it sounds like a Ted Nugent record backwards. It's just insane (laughs) sounding. And then with your heart, it really showcases Kevin Wood's guitar playing quite a bit. And it really reminded me of uh, Sean Smith just did a record with him (laughs) from the north. And it sounds a lot like that. Like the riffs from that song sound a lot like the riffs that he um, did for this this new record he did with Sean Smith, Just made me appreciate him as a guitar player again. You can kind of see in that song... Um, like you said how he, he was picture him as a guitar hero on that scene and mm-hmm. in some ways this would have been early on in their or earlier in their develop in their career in songwriting than say like return to olympus right
1: Yeah, i mean return to olympus was a posthumous release i mean it didn't come out until right. after andy wood passed away so i mean they didn't really have a big recording output it's funny though that you mention it cuz malfunction are back they have a, a new singer yeah there's a single was- on spotify yeah, yeah. So they're they're, I, they're coming out with a new album. I, I'd probably be out this year. I'm assuming. Um, supposedly, some of Andy's old lyrics will be used. So, which makes, I guess, by my count, three of the bands on this on this compilation are are still in existence. Which would be them and Soundgarden and, and the Melvins, who pretty much kept going ever since. Right. Obviously, Soundgarden had a 13 year gap, but uh, so that's. Three out of six, so 50% are still around in some form.
2: Uh, One of the bands that is not around anymore is Skin Yard. reviewed Grunt Truck <laughs> on this podcast, which featured the same singer, Ben McMillan. I want to get to him in a minute, but one of the things I found on Jack and Dino's website, who was in Skin Yard, he talks about how he doesn't, he's not really, I don't think he's happy with the way these songs sound. He said, the, the quote is, um, these versions cannot be said to rock in any sense of the word. They are slow, <laughs> drony, and semi-psychedelic, and we're pretty out of place on this record. And then they both, they both the songs were re recorded for um, future releases. I actually found myself liking these songs, but the thing that I noticed, and especially on I think the second Skinnyard track, which is the birds, it almost, Ben McMillan almost sounds like he's getting to like Nick Cave territory. And when you hear him in Grunt Truck, he doesn't sound anything like this.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Jack and Dino expressed that same thought to me that this, you know, he was kind of chagrin that this is, I mean, a lot of people, when they know Skinnyard, they know them but from these two songs, and he's just like, these are not representative of our band. We're, we're a lot more metal than most of the other bands in Skinnyard, were are a lot more metal, which is probably one of the reasons they were never on Sub Pop, even though Jack and Dino produced pretty much all the bands on Sub Pop. He was the guy, for those who don't know, who did Bleach. Who did uh Mud Honey, Super Fuzz, Big Muff, who did Soundgardens, early stuff. So I mean he was basically the in house producer at Sub Pop. Um and he was a guitarist in Skin Europe. But I mean, hey, there there is that kind of almost British feel to it, like Bowie esque vocals somewhat. And I, I think Ben McMillan, Ben McMillan was not a, a he he had no training as a singer. I think he was just still finding his way. I mean that sound, sounds nothing like the guy, obviously, that, you know, singing in grunt Truck. So I think these were just early, early <laughs> recordings that, you know, for better, for, you know, for, much to Jack, uh, Jack and Dino's Chagrin are, are become what many people think of when they think of yarn.
0: One of the things that stood out to me when their first track comes on is his voice. He actually delivers some lines and some melodies and things that really stand out from everybody else. On this, that that I was kind of surprised. The flip side of that is he gets way overly dramatic and almost Jim Morrison-esque, or it kind of sounds like art rock opera at times. Definitely <laughs> art,
1: definitely like, art rock. Like, yeah,
0: you know, like theatrical. And then the one song, I think the second song, has a uh, saxophone
1: on it. Yeah, <laughs> Which, uh, not not saxophone. One... Not very grungy. Not very. Grungy, no,
0: no, but... no. So that was a that was a surprise. I'm sure yeah, I'm not mean, thrilled about that being on this.
1: In many ways, Skin Yard were were the odd band out there, one of the last bands added, basically to as Kim I'll explained to me, sort of make it around. You okay. know, even six. Uh, you know, the U men were were the, the big band that uh the big band at the time that they, you know, really needed to be on this compilation. They, or at least Kim, felt to make it successful. And you know, they they were a last basically up until the last minute. wasn't sure if they were going to be on it or not. And then they, you know, recorded their one song for it.
2: And the U-Men I was completely unaware of them prior to reading the book and then listening to the the compilation. I think uh, they might have been mentioned. There's a documentary that came out in the '90s called Hype that Mm -hmm. I I saw at the time when it came out and then I revisited it a couple years ago and I think they get mentioned in that from this one track way different than what you think of in terms of grunge I would describe it as almost like rockabilly Captain Beefheart They don't have the darkness they're they're way more playful uh, with their songwriting and from reading about them they were not the dour men on stage that a lot of the other bands uh were accused of being i remember i think the first show that they played um involved them not the first i mean it was the first show where they caused some things to blow up was that the first show that they played
1: with the <coughs> um no, the B- the Bumbershoot show was not their first show, but that was their most legendary show, and that's how the book okay. begins. Where they 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 played the Bumbershoot festival, which was actually uh, right around the time of this the recording of Deep Six, um, and they played the Bumbershoot festival, which you know still goes on in Seattle. Well, at the time, it you know it was at the Seattle C- Center and at the Mural Amphitheater, which had a moat surrounding the stage filled with water and. And during the, the last song, the, the roadies filled it with uh, lighter fluid and, and, you know, John Bigley, the singer, came out with a lit broom and lit the mode on fire, which you can you can see a picture of it actually in the book. It's it described by many as being super impressive, but, you know, the, the accounts of it vary so widely. Unfortunately, there were no nobody was nobody nobody had camera phones back then. It would have been quite something <laughs> to see. Yeah, that that was kind of their most legendary show. I mean, they were known for their their onstage stunts and antics. But yeah, they definitely had more rockabilly feel. And and, and the Captain Beefheart references is probably spot on because they they do um, a couple of the members did cite Captain Beefheart as a. Um, And influence, yeah. They were a little bit more punk rock. I mean, their terms sometimes "godfathers of grunge" or "grandfathers of grunge," or some, you know, because they they were so influential. All the bands, all the people I spoke to, everyone saw the U-Men. They were one of the, you know, the, the city's most beloved sort of underground bands. They were, you know, highly influential from their theatricality, especially I think. Uh, influence people
2: i don't really think of those bands as being theatrical other than maybe you know malfunctioned and
0: and andy wood but <laughs> in, in a different way in a very different way yeah i, I mean i think in hindsight now it seems the song uh it, it's hard to it's hard to hear the judging by this song the what impact this band had on the other bands um, it just seems so different maybe at the time it would have made more sense but now it just seems like it probably doesn't help that it's the last song on the record either because it sort of right. feels a little bit like tacked on is there material like easy to get i know skin yard is pretty t- difficult to find any stuff and we know malfunction has one record that was put out after andy's passing is there is there stuff easy to find
1: yeah i mean there, there's one human album that pretty much you know compiles all their stuff i mean okay. skin yard albums aren't particularly hard to find at this you know <laughs> Go to go to half You can probably get them all. And uh, I mean, malfunction obviously just have that one compilation. There's right. like a zillion zillion Melvin's albums and you know, the Green River yeah. uh, sub pop comp- compiled most of their stuff onto one CD. So it's yeah, like
0: I should have t- qualified that. If it's not on iTunes or Spotify or eMusic, then it's hard to find. <laughs> oh,
1: I was gonna say, is that the, I yeah. guess that's the new definition of yeah. I mean, Spotify is actually pretty disappointing when it comes to. Some of this gr- early grunge stuff, uh, a lot of it, just not there. So yeah. it's not it's not as complete, complete as uh, it was it was promised in the beginning. But uh, you know, you can find some of it, and certainly, uh, I haven't checked iTunes for these things. But they you know, you know, you can certainly get the CDs, usually at deeply well, how- discounted rates.
0: <laughs> how different oh. is this song from the rest of their catalog, or is it?
1: Oh, the you men I mean, they, they certainly a lot of it had that kind of uh rockability feel to it and sort of the punk rock feel i mean in some ways uh, as you'll read in the book they kind of had a kinship with a lot of the bands from austin like the Butthole surfers or poison 13 bands like that right you know they they, they were coming maybe from a little bit they, they were a little older than most of these guys it you know they had feet in different worlds they were definitely the cool older kids and they were definitely a little as you'll see as you read, but less. They, they weren't really compromising in their vision. They weren't, they were definitely not seeking success and they perhaps could have had success because obviously, at a t- you know, they broke up before Seattle kind of uh, took off, but they, they had they gotten back together, they could have tried to take advantage of it, but that was not, mm. that was not their desire. Tom Price obviously went on to form, form Gas Huffer, but you know, which had, which had um, some moderate success, but they weren't a grunge band by any, structure of the imagination because they mm-hmm. they had, the men were, were you know pretty widely respected and they, their importance to the seattle scene became more evident the more people i talked oh. to it just they were just the band that, for a while in seattle and you, know, you missed one of their shows at your peril they were sort you... of
0: uh role models right and, and not necessarily uh say like a yeah. Melvin's where you can, say, you can see the lineage, you can see the musical influence from like a Melvin's to a Nirvana. This is more of like a role models of like how you can conduct yourself, how you, you know, the, what ethics, you know, are, are an ethos and stuff Do we believe in what are we trying to do? And how do we put on a show?
1: Yeah. I mean, they, they were the first or one of the first, I should say bands to actually get out of Seattle to tour the country, which was a huge yeah. deal back then. Now, now we take it for granted, but there wasn't that infrastructure of clubs and, you know, oftentimes, as the guys would say, they would get to clubs and they, they would have been closed for a couple of weeks by the time that they got there. So it wasn't it wasn't the same as it is now with booking agents and, and organized club systems. So they, they were real pioneers. They, Yeah, I think they led more by example than I don't think they were so much sonically imitated as, as they were like kind of the forebears and they were the pioneers of sorts.
2: Well, usually at this point in the show, we would do some sort of wrap up and suggest the album for people or give a final review but I don't know that that's necessarily appropriate. I kind of feel like uh, this is sort of like if you um, if you like Goodfellas you have to watch The Godfather to understand <laughs> right. where, where Goodfellas is coming. If you like uh, so many of the bands that came after Nirvana, Alice and Chains up until God forbid the bad you know third generation grunge bands, you kind of need to go back and listen to this and, and the Sub Pop 100 to hear where it all started. This is the uh, These are the dinosaur bones
1: of that sort of era. Probably say Sub Pop 100 was actually not that it was, if I may interject, was, it was more like uh, bands like Sonic Youth and, and uh, Shaman Knife and Steve Albini and, and the U-Men were actually on that too, but it wasn't so much the Seattle uh, sound as Sub Pop 200 which was kind of like what we recognize as, as the classic era of sub-pop, which was Tad and Nirvana and Mudhoney and Soundgarden and Green River and, and Cat Butt, bands like that that came out in uh, 88. So that, that would probably be also a very good starting place. Excellent. And I'm glad you That's why we have smarter people that. than us on the show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, where are the, the smarter people uh. hiding? <laughs> I don't
2: know. All right, well. we teased it earlier, but we're going to get to it now. We have a trivia question, and the winner of this trivia question will be selected at random by posting the correct answers, plural, to either uh, the Dig Me Out Facebook page or mark's facebook page uh which you can which go to is. facebook yeah mark what is your facebook page
1: it's uh, obviously facebook.com slash everybody loves our town all oh, one word everybody loves our town
2: and ours is uh slash dig me out podcast we'll have a we'll both post uh, a thread that you can then in the comments post the answer and then we will randomly pick one winner and I'm afraid we're going to have to limit this to the United States of America, people. Due to the declined economy and uh, the high cost of shipping due to gas prices, we will <laughs> not be able to ship around the world. This will be limited to the United States of America. We will come up with something else for our fans in the UK and Australia, perhaps something that will not cost as much to ship. But we're
1: going to give away. <laughs> like an MP3. And,
2: yes, we were shipping yeah. an MP3. <laughs> Or a piece of paper. We'll send you a letter <laughs> that says you've won. Uh, we're going to be giving away a sealed copy of the vinyl Deep Six compilation so kindly provided by our guest, Mark Yarm. The trivia question is I'm going to put a little drum roll here so that we have a dr- drama. Mark, do you want to
1: re- give us the trivia oh, question? Sure, sure. Well, should I should add also Chris Hansen uh you know the man behind e six was kind enough to uh yes. provide this copy it's, it's it's not coming from me he should get all the credit for that and uh it is an original sealed copy it's um don't sell it on ebay but they could they fetch they fetch a nice price on ebay but uh
2: hold on to it's... it for at
1: least a year before you hurt <laughs> our feelings yeah exactly. i don't want to see this on ebay so question is of all the musicians who played on deep six two of them have since passed away they're no longer with us who are those two musicians and i'll give you one hint both of them were singers
2: there you go folks post your answers to our facebook pages if you post in both we're going to count it as one you don't get two entries post it we will pick you have uh, one week to answer Look, basically this doesn't cost you anything, so don't get mad at us if we randomly change the rules. We're not professional trivia hosts. Uh, the same publisher of
1: yeah, this is <laughs> a publisher clearing, exactly we'll have it all sorted out by the time uh, it goes up online so then they can yes. read the rules then and and uh, adhere to those rules.
0: Answer the question right and you'll get a chance to get the deep six comp on vinyl. Sealed.
2: That's sealed pretty damn good. Yes, we need to thank our guest, and we need to plug his website, which is grungebook.tumblr.com, which is, is the home of Everybody Loves Our Town and Oral History of Grunge. You can f- you can find starting today, uh, March thirteenth, you can find it in paperback at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, bound. Thanks to Three Rivers Press, who are putting that out. You can also find it uh, hardcover. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Press, or you can, I believe, get the um, digital version on iTunes. And then if you are in the UK, for one of our UK listeners, and you're not upset at us for excluding you from the contest, you can go to, you can order from Amazon and Waterstones to pick up the book. All yes. right, well, thanks. Thanks, Mark, for uh, for coming on and uh, joining us. And um, best of luck with the release of the paperback. and yeah. uh, with And... Uh, I'm gonna be Thanks, driving
1: the Melvan across country. That's my nice <laughs> Spreading. America in the Melvan. Throwing throwing free books out as I as I scoot along.
2: Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Mark. We're out of here. We'll be back Thanks, next guys. week with another episode. Of Dig Me Out.
1: Wanna leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com. For links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.